welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. And once you get there, we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. Because it is just that. It is God's Word. And I'm going to read Ephesians 4 together. And then we will sit back down. All right. So when you get there, stand up. Ephesians chapter 4. Garrett, who was here for Pastor Garrett last week. Yeah. So awesome man of God. I, I, I know that you guys were in good hands. We're going to be reading the full section of Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. But our text tonight is verses 7 through 10. Okay? So Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all. And through all and in all. In our text. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended? Well, if someone ascends, he must have come down first into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith so unity in spirit now unity in faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood or maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the living word of God. You may be seated. On June 16th, 
which is a great day, by the way, because it's my birthday. (laughs) On June 16th in 1858, the Republican State Convention met in Springfield, Illinois. And they chose Abraham Lincoln to run against the Democrat, Stephen Douglas, for the U.S. Senate. Lincoln's speech that evening has become famous. Um, It was specifically about the problems of slavery in the United States. The United States was fractured. And especially was due to the effect of the recent Dred Scott decision of the United States Supreme Court. And this is what Lincoln said in this momentous speech, this famous speech. He says this, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe the government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all another. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction. Or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. The United States was far more fractured than it was now. Right? We call it the United States. Right? The, the union of states was fractured. It was divided. And it is said that Abraham Lincoln saved the union. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, this is a perfect illustration. Because the, uh, the saving of the Union came at a great cost. And the great cost was that hundreds of thousands of Americans gave their life for the saving, sacrificed their life for their country and their people to save the Union. And here we have a great picture of the grand story of the Bible. And what Paul has revealed to us about Christ, the great unifier of all things. That's what the whole book of Ephesians is about. That God has revealed in the, plan, in the eternal plan and the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and earth. Two, two opposed things. Heaven, a place of holiness, a place where God reigns. And earth, a place of curse because of sin. To unite all those things in Christ Jesus, right? That's the good news of the Bible. That's what the Bible's all about. And Paul is bringing this to bear on the people, right? That Christ is the great unifier of all things. So the Bible is clear that there is a war between God and man, between heaven and earth. There's no way man can fix it. You and I cannot fix it. This war, we cannot win this war because man loves being enslaved to their sin, slavery. But God made an eternal plan to save the world, to bring, a great, to bring about a great union, to create a new people, a new nation, a new city, a new temple, a new humanity who were once enslaved to sin but now have been set free by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And this new nation consists of people who once hated each other, Jew and Gentile, who now have been brought 
into union. North and south brought into union through Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 1 through 3 tells us how that came to be. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our great Savior. And this was all according to plan. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us, right? That in Christ, two enemies would be reconciled. Heaven and earth, man and God, united and visibly seen in and through Christ's body, which is the church. The church is the gospel made visible. The church, not the United States, but the church ultimately is a picture of this great union between God and man and man between brothers and sisters in the church. So friends, this is what is called the good news of the gospel. And I'm afraid many of you have heard it so many times in your life that you've become dull to it. Or maybe you're hearing it for the first time. You may know the gospel intellectually, but you have not trusted in Jesus Christ. You have not rested in him. You have not laid your life down, your pride down, your self-righteousness down to trust in him. You are still enemies of Christ. You have not been united. And your only hope of salvation, your only hope in this life is that you would repent of your sins and trust in him. And for those of you that are Christians, this is the greatest news of all, right? The gospel is the, is the good news, but it's not just good news for you. It is also the great motivator and unifier of the church. It's the thing that not only saves you, the good news that saves you, but it's the thing that unifies you to one another. That you have so much in common with one another if you are in Christ Jesus. Didn't we just read that in verse four? There is, right? Look at verse three in chapter four. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, bond, unity, right? It's all about unity. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I have more in common with a believer that I've never met that I'm sitting next to on an airplane than I do with my family members who don't know Jesus Christ. That is amazing. So when we look at the whole passage, though we're only looking at verses 7 through 10, the reason why I wanted to read that is because Paul is now in the section where he is, is pretty much asking, how do we respond to the marvelous grace of Christ, to all that he has done? And he tells us in verse 1, Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Right? He calls them to unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That was last week. And then verses 7 through 10, Paul tells us how God, through his triumphant king, provides gifts to us to keep us unified, which is tonight. And then next week, Sam is going to preach on how those gifts are worked out in the body of Christ through you to keep us unified. It's all about unity. And so verses 1 through 6, it's unity. Verse 7 through 10, diversity, which we'll talk about tonight. And then unity again. See, unity for the United States began at the end of the Civil War. But it took years for that unity to be realized, right? And still in our country today, we still are dealing with this. The North and the South still hated each other after the Civil War. 
And in the same way, Christ has defeated our greatest enemy. He has defeated sin and death. He is the hostility killer. He is reigning on the throne. We have been raised to new life. We are new creatures. We are his new body, his new people, his new temple. But the church is still made up of sinners, right? (laughs) And there's churches filled with disunity. And praise, praise God that his grace isn't strictly for justification, but also the point is this, that he gives gifts to help us in our Christian life, in sanctification. He doesn't leave us to figure out how to unify ourselves, but in seven verses seven through 10 tonight, he shows us how the triumphant king is the one who saves us, not only that, but helps us attain unity between one another. So in verses seven through 10, we're gonna see three truths about the triumphant king. And the first thing that we see in the text is that the triumphant king gives gifts to each individual member of the church. He gives gifts. Look at verse seven. What does it say? But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I love that. Paul calls calls us to be humble, to bear with one another, to live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel. And then I'm thinking to myself, that's hard. I fail every week. And then I read verse 7, and how does it start off? But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. I love that. If the grace of salvation wasn't enough, the Lord Jesus bestows even more grace, more gifts to each one of us. So what is Paul talking about this grace? Because I thought I was already a Christian. Is this salvific grace? What kind of grace or what kind of gift is this? One commentator says this. Paul is not referring here to God saving us by grace alone in Christ dying for us, but he's referring to his subsequent additional grace in giving us gifts of ministry as Christ has distributed them. These gifts are given not for our personal satisfaction or reputation, but to enrich the life and service of others in our church. These gifts of grace are not just abilities, but ministries, ways for us to serve his church family. So Jesus saves us, brings us into a new body, and then he says, hey, I have some awesome gifts for you in order to bless the church, in order to bless one another. I mean, look around. He's given each and every one of you specific gifts. And, And the point in the immediate context is though we have so much in common in Christ Jesus, the one body, one faith, one baptism, we also have a diversity of gifts that are given to each one of you specifically by Jesus Christ himself for the building up of one another. And what are these gifts? If you, in your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12. Because Paul uses the same language in Romans chapter 12 about, uh, uses the same language saying, according to the measure of faith, just as God, Christ gives us gifts, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Romans chapter 12, I want you to turn there. Verses three through eight. What are these gifts that God gives to us individually? These diverse gifts. Paul says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
For as in one body, unity, we have many members, diversity, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, diversity, are one body in Christ, unity, and individually members of one another. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, same language as Ephesians chapter 4, let us use them for our own personal gain? No. Let us use them for the body. If prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. If service, use it in our serving. To the one who teaches, use it in his teaching. To the one who exhorts, in his exhortation. To the one who contributes in generosity. To the one who leads with zeal. To the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. God has given us a plethora of gifts, and there's more places I could go to. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is one of them. And then also in our immediate text, it says that he gave, verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints. And just as every pastor, just as our church doesn't share the same pastor with other churches, there's a diverse amount of pastors, right? What's the point here? Why does Paul want us to know that Christ gives us gifts? First, to remind you that every spiritual gift comes from the triune God to you. That you are not good enough in and of yourself. That your gifts don't come from you. That any talents that you have are not from you. They are from God. And that's to humble you. And just as God is a singular being existing in unity... He is also three persons. There's diversity. And so the, when we look at the church and we see one body of people together using diverse gifts, it is a picture of God himself to the world. That's why this is so important and why it's so amazing. Some of you, you have the gift of discernment. Some of you have the gift of joy. I know Christians, that's the fruit of the spirit. All people have joy. But then there's some people that they really have joy. <laughs> And you know what I'm talking about. You have people that are just master encouragers. Some of you are in here. I'm thinking of you right now. Some of you have the gift of con- you have conviction and leadership. And you're strong, you're bold, you're courageous. Some of you are compassionate and kind. Right? Some of you, you love the truth, you know the truth. Others so loving. It's so beautiful. Obviously, we want to extend ourselves to be all those things. But he's given gifts to each one of you. For what reason? To compare ourselves to one another? To be discontent like I wish I had that gift? Do you even know that you have spiritual gifts? That's a good question for life groups. According to the text, God in his grace has given each and every one of you specific gifts to be used for the building up of the body. And those gifts are outlined all throughout scripture. I don't have time to go through them, but... Romans 12, 3 through 8 is one great section of that. Sadly, many Christians today either squander their gifts by not using them in the church or they spend all their time grumbling and complaining in their heart that their spiritual gifts are not like so-and-so's. Right? So, or you become prideful and use your gifts for your own gain. But how can this be when it comes from a gracious king? That's the point. So, use your gifts to build up the church. That's the first thing. The triumphant king gives gifts to his people, to each one of us. Second, we see in the, in the, in the text, 
On what basis does Christ have the authority to give gifts? Where do these gifts come from? Point number two, the triumphant king has ascended to reign. He has ascended to reign. It's the second thing we see in the text. Why is it that Christ could give gifts? Because he is the king of kings. He has conquered the greatest enemy. (laughs) One of my favorite scenes in The Lion King is the ascension. You guys know what an ascension is? It's kind of a ceremony where someone is named king and they, uh, they go and they receive the crown, right? There's many movies about this. I think of Lord of the Rings always, right? When Aragorn, the, the ascension uh, ceremony. But, but Christ, or, or, but in The Lion King, right? Simba destroys the work of the devil, which is pictured in resentful, bitter and cunning Uncle Scar. Scar. He defeats him. And then he is seen in the final scene on Pride Rock before all the animals as they all give praise and bow down to Simba. I love it. The lion. Right? It's a beautiful scene. And that's exactly the, same, this, the picture that Paul wants to paint in your mind. He's not thinking of Lion King. But he, he wants to paint a similar picture of what has happened in verse 8. He says, Therefore, the reason why Christ gives gifts to us because he has ascended on high and led a host of captives and has given gifts to men. And in saying that he has ascended, what does it mean? That he has also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who has descended is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all in, uh, that he may fill all things. So what is this about? What does this have to do with unity? Well, Paul, the key is this. Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. It's a quote. It's an Old Testament quote. And if we can understand Psalm 68, we can understand why this matters and how this is giving a picture to the triumphant King Jesus. And so we have to ask, what is this psalm about? We don't have much time to turn there, but I'll just summarize it for you. The Psalm 68 is about God's triumphant, victorious march from Mount Sinai after the Exodus to the, into the wilderness to Mount Zion. And within this march in the psalm, it details how Yahweh brings his people into the land and absolutely conquers the land, conquers the enemy. Kings flee from him. This is the book of Joshua. When Joshua brings the people in the land and, and they destroy Jericho and they, they devote all, these, all the people to destruction and, and, and they have complete and total victory and they enter into the land and then they set up a king and Saul first, first and foremost, but that wasn't God's king. God's king is David, right? And David is a man after God's own heart and he establishes the kingdom. And then in King Solomon, he builds a temple, a dwelling place for the Lord. And so in Psalm 68, it details how God comes in, wipes out his enemies, comes and establishes his kingdom. And then there's this scene where he's ascending to the throne and he takes his seat as the rightful king. And then what happens is that all the nations and all the kings come and they start to pay tribute and give gifts and praise and worship the king of kings. What does this have to do with Ephesians? What does this have to do with Jesus? Everything. Psalm 68 
was, is pointing to Jesus. It tells the story of the Exodus, the conquest, right? The ascension, the fulfilling of the Abrahamic covenant where all the kings, all nations are coming and, and they're paying tribute. The point that Paul is trying to make is that that psalm is about Jesus. He is the king of kings. He is the one who led the Exodus out. He is the one who has conquered the enemy, Satan, sin, and death. He has had the victory and he is in heaven now, seated on his throne. Ephesians chapter 1, just go back to Ephesians chapter 1. We already learned this in verse 18. Where is Jesus? In verse 18, chapter 1. Sorry, verse 20, chapter 1. Where is Jesus? He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that the whole entire Old Testament is about Jesus. He is the conquering king. I love what John Calvin says. He says, the noblest triumph which God ever gained was when Christ, after subduing sin, conquering death, and putting Satan to flight, rose majestically to heaven, and he, that he might exercise his glorious reign over the church. And that's where he is now. And it was typical in that time when a Roman king went out to conquer another people, and they would conquer them. They would destroy them. What would happen is that they would leave this great entire procession where the king would come into the city and people would cheer and he would be carrying with him. You know what he would be carrying with him? The spoils, the plunder, right? The gifts. And he'd be handing out the gifts to all the people. And that's the idea is that Jesus went right into the heart of Satan's home bound him, destroyed all of his enemies at the cross, took, plundered all of his goods, and now is giving them, it's really not Satan's goods, but you get the picture. He plundered the enemy, and now he's giving gifts to the church for the building up of the church. See, so much of our thinking about Jesus, and it's true, and we're going to get to this point, is of a suffering lamb, a, a weak, a weakness, a softness maybe, what Vody Bauckham calls a sissified Jesus. And we forget that he is the triumphant king who comes riding on a white horse with a sword dripped in blood. Like, <laughs> that is Jesus. He is the one that goes into the temple and flips over tables with a whip. And he's also, thirdly, he is the triumphant king who came to descend to die. So there is an aspect here that we need to cover. So Jesus is the victorious, triumphant king. He is the one who has ascended, is what Paul has said. He's led a host of captives, that is Satan and his enemies. He's bound them. He's given gifts to men. But if he has ascended, the logic is, is this. If he's already ascended into heaven, it must mean that he came to earth, that he descended. Isn't that what Paul says? And it says, in saying that he ascended, verse 9, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. So, what does this mean that Jesus descended into the lower regions of the earth? Because Roman Catholics love this passage. 
This is purgatory. I mean, this is, that's where he's going. He's going to hell, right? To, to preach to, to the spirits. There's some weird views about that. I'm not going to get into that. But in, the point is this, is that in systematic theology, Jesus' work for sinners is summarized into two different states. The state of humiliation. His life is one of humiliation and exaltation. We just looked at exaltation. But what, and Paul is drawing this out. He who ascended, exaltation, has descended, his humiliation. We confess that Jesus, the Son of God, has come down to the lower regions of the earth. But what does that mean? Calvin says this. There is no sense in torturing this phrase to make it mean purgatory or hell. Paul is speaking simply about our condition in the present life. What we have here is not a comparison of one part of earth with another, but of the whole earth with heaven. He means that Christ left his exalted seat and came all the way down into our own abyss. The point is this. Before he ascended, Jesus came and associated with the weak. He became a man. Before he was given a crown of gold, he was first given a crown of thorns, right? Before he'd be clothed in kingly robes, he was clothed with our sin and trespasses, bearing it. Before kings would come and bow in submission to King Jesus, he bowed in submission to Pontius Pilate. He humbled himself. And before the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the church, the ultimate gift, the wrath of God would first be poured out on Jesus Christ for you. This is the humiliation that he went through. His life of pain and trial, of perfect obedience for us, but then taking the penalty of the law. In other words, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, right? Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, washing the feet of his disciples, weeping with his family members or, or those that, who died, right? Lazarus being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, whipped and maimed and mocked and beaten and, and scorned and nailed to a tree. He died so that he may give gifts <laughs> to you. But therefore, he did not stay dead. Ephesians, I'm quoting Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the ascendant triumphant king, that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Exaltation or humiliation first, exaltation, Right? He who ascended, descended. Why? So that he may give gifts. The gift of salvation, but then gifts to you and I. And I love this. What's the application for this? Is that God exalts the humble, right? But humbles the prideful. And the pattern of Christ's life, which is one of humiliation, descent before ascent, is the same pattern of the Christian life. It's the same pattern of the church, 
And you need to realize this as you live the Christian life, as you walk as pilgrims. We live now as believers, but it's the life that we now live is mixed with joy and pain, right? Praise and trials. Days of happiness, bouts of depression, despair. Days of victory over sin, days of being entangled with sin. That's the Christian life. However, with that, we as Christians must be beware of two wrong views of the Christian life. Those, the first one is those that live life as if sin has dominion over them and there's no hope. These are the Eeyores in the Christian church. These are the, it is hopeless. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Christ is on the throne reigning. He's defeated sin and death, but they live as if Satan and sin have overwhelming power. That is not true. It's not. But on the opposite side, there are those who downplay indwelling sin and who live the Christian life as if they don't struggle with sin and all is well and they have to keep it all together and anyone who suffers is probably actually in sin. You've probably heard that. Both of these views are wrong. Because if you're a believer, you already have the victory in Christ. It's just not yet fully realized, and one day we will realize it. And so in this life, we struggle, we crawl, we limp to heaven. Go read the Pilgrim's Progress. It is not an easy journey, but it is guaranteed he will make it to the celestial city, and it is guaranteed you will as well. Why? Because Christ has already plundered the strong man. He has had the victory. He is the triumphant king. And since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us use the gift that God has given us for the building up of the church. That's the application. Since Christ is the victorious king, students, let's cease from trying to put our desires on the throne. Because Christ, since Christ has died for you, let's sacrifice our lives for others. See the application? Since Christ has died for sin, let's hate sin and fight against sin. Since Christ has loved us, brothers and sisters, we must walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And since Jesus Christ is the risen King, application, crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark, how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Worship. Worship the triumphant king. Father God, thank you so much for this passage. You have given us gifts through the triumphant king who is exalted, who is reigning, but who first, in order to conquer, did it through descending, did it through dying. And I pray that we would imitate Christ. He is the triumphant king. Father, you're so good for giving us this passage. It's so beautiful. Lord, I pray that we would crown you in our lives, that we would 
Awake, O my soul, and sing of him who died for thee to hail him as thy matchless king through all of eternity. Father God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.